So our son, Tucker, and I uh, invented this game a couple of months ago that we have really loved playing. The game is called Choice Point, and it works like this. We hop on my bike, and the tag-along, his tag-along is attached to it, and we roll out of our garage down the alley toward the street, and I yell back to him, Choice Point, which way? Left, straight, or right? And then Tucker calls out, right, and we turn right. Okay, I yell as we approach the intersection now between two streets. Choice point, which way? Left, straight, right, or turn around? And Tucker says, straight! And so we go straight. I really dig this game. So does Tucker. Every intersection or alley presents us a choice. Which way will we go? Where will we, where will we end up? He loves this game. I do too. And I think maybe one of the reasons he likes it is that I do all the pedaling. <laughs> and he does all the directing. So it's like it works out well for him. But here's what I've learned playing this game with him. Sometimes on Choice Point, we just go out and essentially go in a really big square circle because he just keeps picking a direction predominantly over other directions. So straight and right, straight and right. Maybe one or you know, a left here and there, but straight and right, a big circle. I'm sure there's a lesson there. Sometimes we've gotten miles away from our house, happily having discovered new neighborhoods, businesses, parks, a whole bunch of new stuff, and we actually have to stop playing choice points so we can get home again. <laughs> And sometimes we get really lost, especially the first few times we choice pointed our way through parts of Tangletown. We'd end up on this curving road, so maybe some of you have done this, this curving road by Minnehaha Creek where you're like, huh, not a lot of option here. And then you're bumped up against the sound barrier from 35 and then dumped out on some other street. And you're just like, wow, there was really no, no options there. And then you're back somewhere where you recognize the terrain. And then sometimes on this choice point game, I know I just know, at least I think I know, the best direction to go. And so I, pers I persuade him of my uh, decision which direction we should go. And interestingly, those rides are generally less fun for both of us. Choices, choices, choices. The examples I've shared are lighthearted ones. It's a game, but even with the game, our choices end up. We are lost. We discover new things. We see new things. They set a trajectory, the choices we make for the adventure ride we'll have for the day. And on one of these recent rides, while I was pedaling hard, Tucker kept saying to me, faster, faster. And I was like, all right, faster, fine, we'll go faster. But I started to think about all of the choices we make in our personal lives all the time where we live, the choices around where we live, the choices around where we work, if we interview for different jobs or looking for a particular job, where we shop, where we don't shop, who we spend time with, what causes we get involved in, where we give money, all of these choices, family choices. If we have children, choices about where our children will go to school. And then I started thinking, about the institutional choices that are reflected in the policies and the practices of the places we work, the school districts we're a part of, the boards we sit on, the community organizations we're a part of. In each of those settings, those institutional settings, there are choices about things that get funded or not. There are choices about who gets interviewed or how deep you look in the pool for who gets interviewed or not. 
all kinds of choices. And just like with the Choice Point bike ride, there are many little choices in those institutions that add up to have a tremendous impact. Choices, choices, choices. This is important to us because as a religious people, our history is one of being deeply grounded in the freedom to choose. Our early Universalist and Unitarian ancestors were often called heretics. The root of the word heretic, heresy, means to choose. So our religious ancestors would choose a faith that made sense to their head and heart. They would read the Bible or other scripture holding their reason and their experience in tension with what the scripture said. So they would choose the way to practice and live their faith. Our religious ancestors and us today believe that when we come to a fork in the road, we can choose to go left or we can go right or we can thrash away through the dense underbrush, but underbrush and just make our own path moving forward. But when we come to that fork in the road, we have a choice. Or as Yogi Berra would say, when we come to a fork in the road, we pick it up. <laughs> That's a choice too. Unlike other religious traditions that stress predestination, the idea that everything is predestined, predetermined by God's will, we believe in the freedom to choose. But with that freedom comes a call for deep responsibility and humility because no matter our intentions, when we make a choice, the impact of our choices ripples out through the web of connection in ways we cannot possibly understand. And this understanding, this recognition of that fact is particularly important as it relates to the work and the learning we've been doing around racial justice and the perpetuation of racist systems and structures despite the many good intentions of people. And this has been challenging for many of us. As we keep talking about race and racism and whiteness, I know that many of you white folks in the congregation have thought, why are we doing this? I'm not racist. I get this. I got this. I know there's a problem. I get it. You keep talking about it, Justin. We get it. We know there's a problem around race in this country. And I know you've thought that, not because I'm a mind reader, but because you've told me that. <laughs> and I've appreciated the conversation and the dialogue and the recognition. I'm wrestling with this too. This is why it's a 400-year and seemingly intractable problem because it gets hard and it's hard to take it apart and move forward. I'm wrestling too. And so I've deeply appreciated the ways we've said to one another also, we've said to one another, no, actually, you know what? I don't think I've got this. I think there's some things here I'm not seeing. We have a lot to learn. And one of the reasons we have a lot to learn is that we all operate with implicit bias when it comes to race and skin color. This is just true. There's no shame in that. It's in the air we breathe and it shapes our responses. And beginning to see that and recognize that is important. So if, if we're white, there are particular ways this plays out. There was an article in the New York Times not too long ago that just looked at a whole bunch of studies away around the way that implicit bias played out. So one example was uh, sending emails with stereotypical black names when you're looking for apartments on Craigslist and you would get fewer responses if you sent an email with a stereotypical black name. White state legislators were found to be less likely to respond to constituents with African-American names. That was across both, both parties. There's lots of other examples of this. 
But when you step back from that and you look at the 400-year-old history of race in this country, it's no wonder these implicit biases exist. How could the racist practices and stories of this country not find their way into our subconscious? Let me make this personal. I went online to Harvard, to their website, because they have a whole bunch of stuff on implicit bias, and you can take a bunch of different tests around different kinds of implicit bias, and here's what it revealed. As it turns out, I have a moderate preference for Euro-American children versus African-American children. I also have a moderate association between weapons and African-Americans. So if you're at all aware of the racial history of this country, that's not surprising, right? Black men especially are dangerous, are armed, are a threat, etc. So that's what it revealed. I prefer, have a moderate preference for Euro-American children over African-American children. I have a moderate association between weapons and African-Americans. It feels vulnerable to admit that to you this morning. And the truth is, I love all children. I'm deeply committed to the racial justice work we're doing here. But I operate with implicit, unconscious bias that I have learned over my 40 years. I wasn't born with those biases. I learned them. They can be unlearned. But without lifting them up, without making them visible, they shape my thinking, how I respond to situations. They shape the choices you and I make. Debbie Irving, author of Waking Up White, shares a very powerful story about the ways that these biases work. And I hope you'll come and hear Debbie. She's going to be speaking here at the church on November 6th, that evening. She writes, and I'm going to quote her at length in this story she shares. She writes, in American society, racism acts as a barrier a divider, allowing, people, allowing white people to benefit from the system in ways people of color do not. Skin color itself is not the barrier. It's the beliefs attached to it. And beliefs are harder to pinpoint and also much harder to change. So Debbie shares this aha moment she had in understanding how the skin color barrier plays out. And it happened while she was watching this ABC News Nightline video, The Color Line and The Bus Line was the name of the piece. She says, by the end of the report, I understood better not only how systemic racism worked, but the mechanics of it in my own life. The film starts off with Ted Koppel describing a tragic yet simple story. In 1995, a Buffalo, New York black teenager named Cynthia Wiggins was hit by a truck while crossing the road. She died from her injuries. The driver didn't see her. It was by all accounts an accident. As it turns out, however, it was a preventable accident. As the film unfolded, I watched Buffalo's black residents speak out about the racial injustice of Cynthia's death. In turn, white people in this video accused them of playing the race card. Though I wouldn't have used the term race card, says Debbie, I too was at a complete loss at how this could have anything to do with racism. Racism, how could this accidental death have anything to do with racism? Until the film walked me step by step through the issues, making visible what I couldn't see on my own. Cynthia's death, it turned out, resulted in no small part from a series of decisions on the part of white businessmen as they set out to develop a new mall 
on the white side of town. So hang with me for this story because this was eye-opening to me. I hope you experience some ahas here as well. Debbie Irving goes on to say, Buffalo, like many US cities, is segregated along racial lines. Black residents live on one side of the throughway, white residents on the other. The white side of town, manicured and full of stores and businesses, offers not just better education and housing, but jobs in those stores and in those businesses. The black side of town, run down and far from commerce, offers substandard education, shabby housing, and few, if any, job opportunities. For Buffalo's white residents, avoiding black folks seems a matter of staying on the white side of town. For black folks wanting a job, avoidance of white people isn't possible. This pattern of segregation and avoidance so common across America is a critical part of this story, says Debbie. Avoidance allows an irrational fear of the other to take hold, which is exactly what happened in this situation. Fearing that black customers would scare off white customers, the white mall developers worked with city transportation officials to redirect Buffalo's bus routes, making it extremely inconvenient to get from the black part of town to the new mall. No one actually said, you can't come to our mall, black folks. They just made getting there very unwieldy. This didn't stop Cynthia from pursuing the job she wanted. Thrilled to be hired by a vendor in the new mall's food court, Cynthia remained undaunted by the long and convoluted commute, a 90-minute trip with multiple bus changes. At one connection, not only were there no sidewalks or crosswalks, but you had to make a run for your life across seven lanes of traffic to get from one bus to another. On-ramps and off-ramps on the nearby highway added to the precariousness. On a cold day just before Christmas, Cynthia was hit and killed as she made the crossing on the way to her job. Whoosh, says Debbie Irving. Whoosh, I saw it. An isolated outcome, connected to an entangled and entrenched system invisible to the eye. A wave of horror rolled through me as I realized how frightfully easy it is for white folks to make decisions that don't just maintain, but strengthen racism's hold on communities. It didn't even take evil, she said, just ignorance. My mind flashed to the beginning of the film when the confident white interviewees had been tisking, accusing the black folks of playing the race card and crying wolf. Suddenly, it felt ironic that white people had spent centuries questioning black people's intelligence. White people must look so stupid to black people who find themselves again and again in the position of thinking, come on, white people, how can you not see this? Without setting out to perpetuate racism, the white mall developers did just that. All they had to do was what most business people do, put protecting an investment ahead of weighing the impact on people you don't know. How many millions of conversations like those of the mall developers have played out at conference tables surrounded by white decision makers? Imagine if even one of the decision makers in this situation understood systemic racism and was aware of racial bias. Might he or she have questioned the idea that black clientele would create such pandemonium that white customers would flee 
Might he or she have understood that white fear has been built on years of media reporting the crime stories, but not the everyday moments of socializing and patronage at the black mall? Might he or she have done the research that showed that the mall frequented by black folks had no higher rate of crime than Buffalo's white areas? What about the bus system's decision makers? What about the store owners at the mall? What if a handful of those people had stood up and said, I think we can both make a profit and have some positive social change here. What if someone, anyone, had dared to put skin in the game of racial change? This is still Debbie Irving here. How can anyone be expected to do that if they have no understanding of how racism works? Without understanding systemic racism, it is easy to blame the victim and say she shouldn't have been crossing the street, or she must not have looked where she was going, or it was her parents' fault she was living in that far-off, dilapidated neighborhood in the first place. If she hadn't been there, this wouldn't have happened. Easy, says Debbie, but unfair and profoundly flawed. That's the end of the story from Debbie. Irving. I don't know how that story sits with you. Amen. And amen. But when, when I read that story, I stopped and I thought about all of the choices I make in my own life, all of the choices we make as a faith community, all of the choices of the organizations and the influence I have in those organizations that just get made kind of like clockwork. And I don't stop to think, what are the far-reaching implications. And I wondered about all of us, 900 members strong this church is, all the places we sit, the tables we sit at, the choices we make every day in boardrooms, in living rooms, in this church, in the committees of this church that quietly reinforce the racial disparities around us. How many choices do we make that allow white people to continue to live in the dream while denying resources and opportunities to people of color. As ta Coates reminds us, it is not enough to say, we meant well. We tried our best. Good intention is a hall pass through history, a sleeping pill that ensures the dream. But we can wake up. I'm trying to wake up. We're trying to wake up. We can stop taking that sleeping pill. We can develop a practice that helps us make choices that move the needle on racial justice. This is the next step in our racial justice journey. I'm thrilled that the Board of Trustees is using a racial equity choice point model to look at the decisions they're making. Using that tool and the set of questions that come with it allows us to go beyond just naming the problem. We see there's a problem but equips us to begin to create a different future. I've included the bare bones outline of those questions you can ask in a link and a QR code in your order of service to learn more about this model. I, will hope, I hope that you will take a look at it. It's on, on the, the worship section side of your page. There's five questions there and there's a link. Take a look at it when you get home, read it. You can read it in 30 minutes. Think about that when you sit with your PTA groups or you sit in your workplace or whatever it might be. It's a good model. 
And think about all of the moments in your life. The first practice is simply to think about all of the moments in your life where you are a decider or someone who influences the deciders. Imagine the impact you could have as someone who begins to understand systemic racism, someone who is aware of racial bias, and someone who is committed to creating alternatives to the status quo. Imagine making choices that help lead to more just outcomes. Imagine tossing the sleeping pills into the garbage and awakening from the dream. Imagine, church, that each of your choices could potentially save a life. May it be so, and amen.